and leadership, and both for the sake of uh, time and then just, uh, I kind of wanted to tease a, a series that I'm working on that we'll kind of st- uh, take a deeper study in later this year. Uh, but I, I don't want to take too much time because I know one of our young men has a kind of a devotional thought that they're sharing as well. And I want to make sure to leave us enough at the end without uh, just, you know, taking away from the young men's thing. So, and again, I want to thank y'all showing up and, and supporting and encouraging these young men. Um, I wish I had said this this morning, but stuff like this, it seems like a small thing, but it's really a big, big deal when we talk about the future and the potential and the growth of the church. So I, I just don't think we can do enough to encourage and build up these, these young men who are willing to sort of step up and take part and learn and just develop their skills. So without further ado, um, I want to rattle off a few scriptures here before we get into something. Because like I said, I'm, I've been working on this idea that will form the basis of a series. But I want to read a few scriptures and you'll kind of get an idea of where we're headed. Uh, This is from Deuteronomy 5, verse 32, and in the context of this is God is speaking to Moses. Deuteronomy 5, 32. He says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, but you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land you shall possess. This is from Deuteronomy 17.20, God giving the guidelines from the law, guidelines for Israel's king. He says that his heart shall not be exalted above his countrymen, and he will not turn aside from his commandments to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may reign many years over his kingdom in Israel. Deuteronomy 28.14, do not turn aside to the right or to the left from any of the words I command you today. Do not go after other gods to serve them. From the beginning of Joshua, when God commissions Joshua to, to lead God's people into the promised land, from Joshua 1.7. Above all, be strong and courageous. Be careful to observe all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. We see in a common theme yet. No? I got one more. Joshua is speaking to the elders who he appoints after him. At the end of Joshua, bookending, job being into Joshua, into Joshua. Be very strong then, so that you can keep and obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, not turning aside from it to the right or to the left. Last one, 2 Kings 22, 2. The narrator is speaking on the act and the work of Solomon, who followed after King David. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left not a coincidence that this phrase appears over and over and over as you notice in the new testament or the old testament i'm sorry but though it's not used verbatim in the new testament i do believe the principle comes up quite often oh I'll be part of this. sorry i'm just gonna make sure everything is working here but the principle comes up quite often but it is presented a little bit differently in the new testament what we see more often is that in, in one particular situation, the, the, the scripture instructs us to, to sort of say one thing or have a certain approach. But in another situation, it might call us to a slightly different uh, approach. And, and when we take these uh, ideas out of context or remove them from their situations, it can sometimes feel when we're reading scripture like we're being told to, to do two different things that can sometimes seem in opposition. And maybe it'll understand as I dig into the specifics but, but I think these ideas can create tension in our minds and in our understanding. It can create hurdles with, with, with really engaging with the message God has for us. And if you've ever read the Bible or, or even especially the New Testament, you've, you've encountered what I'm talking about, even if you haven't really thought about it this way. Just for an example, the most common one we hear about is 
living in the world, but not being of the world, right? We're, we know practically we, are, we exist in the world among non-Christians, but he tells us all the time not to be like the world. And we hear these two phrases thrown around all the time. They sound very similar, but they mean radically different things. In fact, they mean opposite things, really. I want to look at just two passages. And these I won't just rattle off at you, but we'll actually look at them for a moment. Flip over to Matthew 9. Two fairly known passages, I would say. They'll be very familiar to us. But in Matthew 9, Jesus is dining, as we call them, with the tax collectors and the sinners. And in Matthew 9, verse 10, As Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And now, I want to contrast this with another verse we're probably familiar with. This is from 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now, I am writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, or an idolater, or a verbal abuser, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. But eating was the exact focus of Matthew 9. And if you're paying close attention, I'll admit, these, are, these two are probably a little bit easier to resolve than some others. There's some distinction between the context, but the, the principles are there. And if, and if we apply these principles to even broader Christianity, or we think about just our, the broader scope of our Christian mission, you might understand the tension I'm kind of talking about. We necessarily have to be plugged into the world on some level, not just for our jobs and for the practical nature of how we live our lives, but if we're going to evangelize, that means finding people who are not us. It means going out into the world. It means understanding and engaging with people in the world, at least on a, a fundamental level. But at the same time, we constantly worry about condoning or, or approving of, or, or just by, are we, we don't want to make people think we're approving of this behavior. And we, so we've got to be careful who we associate with. It. Those of you of particular background or upbringing have probably often heard the slippery slope argument that, well, if... If we do this, then people might think we'd be doing this thing over here that we're not actually doing yet, but we might, you know, people might say. And so we constantly find ourselves, I think, in some form of tension. Just another example, and, and these are just really small ones that we'll, again, we'll, we'll dive deep into at a later point in time. And if I'm being honest, I probably have more ground to cover on this topic than I'm going to be able to tonight. So bear with me for kind of blowing through this quickly. But another example is that of the commands for unity, but also the example of disfellowship, or sometimes called church discipline. Jesus, in the garden, in a passage we focused on not all that long ago, in John 17, he prays over and over and over that the church be one. That the church be one as he is one, as he and the Father are one, that they be of one mind and they be of one spirit. And of course... We know in Ephesians 4 that, that Paul says they were eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. And that's when he says that, that famous uh, phrase from Ephesians 4, there is one body, one spirit called the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. You've probably heard a lesson over the ones of Ephesians 4, 5. But the New Testament over and over and over calls us 
as the church, as the body of Christ, to, to be of unity, of mind, and of body. But consider, again, 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There is, of course, the famous passage from Matthew 18 on the example of how we ought to resolve our differences or arguments or disagreements, right? That we go to somebody, and if they don't answer, then you go with the witness. And if they don't answer, then you go and you take them before the church. And then if they don't answer, again, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, implying that we ought to treat them essentially as an outsider. Well, how can we maintain one body, one spirit, one faith, and unity, but at the same time purge the evil from among us, or at the same time treat them as outsiders, at the same time treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors? And oh, by the way, aren't those the people Jesus was eating with? So do you see what I mean? That if we're paying attention, it can feel sometimes like there is this tension between these ideas. And there's many, many more examples I could list, but these are not contradictory ideas. Again, don't, don't, don't misunderstand. But I think if we're really listening to the things the Bible calls us to act and how to behave... Sometimes it, it feels like we're at the very least in tension between these two ideas. And, and it forces us to sort of wrestle with what it means. Just by way of another example, how do I love all of God's people and you know, love them as, as creators, those who are created by God and love people as God loved me and, and, and do all that, but also completely reject any form of sin that they might get involved in, knowing full well that all of us sin. Maybe these are things you've thought about before, encountered before. Again, just that idea of unity that we must be one body but also have to purge the evil from among us, as Paul says. Well, what if I told you I've considered the full weight of Scripture and the entirety of everything God has to teach on these kind of topics, and I've prepared a ready, simple answer for you tonight? How many of you would believe me? No chance, right? believe the answer is ultimately that the Bible calls us to live in that tension. And that might seem like kind of a cop-out. It might seem like a weird answer. And, and I hope this isn't just a completely new idea that I'm throwing at you and making you question everything you know. But you'll notice all those passages earlier about what God says to Moses, what God says to Joshua, what God says to David, what he says about Solomon. He says, do not stray this way or that way. Do not turn to the right, but do not turn to the left. Because God acknowledges that what he's calling his, the leaders of his people to do is to really thread the needle between two very difficult concepts sometimes. And if we think about our lives, not just the spiritual things in our lives, but if we think about really everything in our lives, this same principle applies to so many things. Of course, we want to have enough food and make enough money to support our family and to be content and to put a roof over our heads and lay down at night peacefully. But we don't want to be greedy. We don't want to be materialistic. We don't want to grow into people who become lovers of money. Parents, you love your children. You, you want them to grow and be happy, successful, amazing human beings where all of their dreams come true. But you know that it actually means not giving them everything they want. It sometimes means letting them just be unhappy with the choices they make. It means disciplining them. And so I think if we, if we think about life 
really, again, not just in the spiritual things, though I do believe this is a very biblical principle, life in general often causes us to walk a tightrope between what sometimes feels like conflicting ideas, wrestling with these and never fully embracing one extreme or the other. And that's really what I'm talking about when I say living intention. We don't want to be prideful, but we understand that having no self-esteem is not humility. A lot of times vices lie on either extreme and our, our goal is to sort of tread a virtuous middle ground. We are called really to live in tension. And I want to be clear that living in tension when it comes to Scripture and a biblical understanding is, is, is not just a fancy way of saying we should be moderates or centrists in all things. The passage we read this morning talks about adhering to God's Word, keeping His commandments, not changing them. And if we read all the scriptures that talk about keeping his word and how, how passionately we should keep it, well, that's, that's anything but passive and compromising, right? So it's not just that we should take a middle ground in all things, but I, I actually think if we understand living in tension, it means sometimes holding fast to this extreme over here and sometimes to this one over here as we find those situations in scripture. And it means if I'm spending too much time teaching from this approach... I'm probably missing something. But if I'm spending too much time teaching from this approach over here, then I'm probably still really not grasping the full extent of the message. As we begin to close, I want to look at a passage that actually we started with last week, but for a completely different reason. Flip over to Acts chapter 20. And this is really what got me thinking about all these kind of ideas or these concepts. As we were talking about Acts chapter 20 last week, in our context was, of course, elders and, and shepherding the flock and not uh, being careful about the threats and the wolves that would attack the flock. But I want to look at this, really this same section, but from a different perspective. Look at Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. If I could follow this illustration or this analogy Paul uses about the, the church as a flock and the elders as shepherds and those who would attack it as wolves. Part of his message here is that the wolves are outside but they're also inside. And that a good shepherd must actually be wary of attacks from all sides. And if you can think of the Again, the illustration of a shepherd, or if you've ever had cattle. You might know where the wolves tend to come from on your land, but you also know that the more you chase them off that way, they're going to start coming from somewhere else. They're going to circle around. They're going to flank. And I fear, I fear that sometimes with genuine hearts and longing to actually protect our faith and protect our flock, we become so used to seeing wolves coming from this direction that we start to ignore every other direction. That we become very one-directional. And you know what happens when I spend too much time looking this way is I become very vulnerable to attacks from behind me. But you'll notice those passages we read at the very beginning. He doesn't tell David, as long as you stay to the left-hand side of the road, you're fine. Or stay to the right, stay to the right, stay to the right, stay to the right. But over and over and over, he says, do not stray to the right nor to the left. 
I think that's very important because he's telling them, you really have to thread the needle here. And if you ever find yourself holding fast to one extreme perspective or another, you're probably kind of missing the point. And again, I think if we looked at all of those examples in the New Testament of ideas and concepts that can sometimes feel like they're in tension with one another, there's not a resolution. It's not that you pick one and ignore the other. It's not that we can love everyone and neglect all of their sin, but it's not also that we can condemn all sin and therefore never spend any time with anybody who sins because then where would we go, right? But I fear that sometimes we are so used to threats coming from one particular direction that all we talk about is how we need to be careful of this, careful of this, careful of this, careful of this, without really stopping to look around and recognizing that, as he tells us, the wolves really can attack from any direction. Something that kind of started this, this inkling of thought, since I have a couple minutes still here, was I was at a conference and we were talking to ministers, ministers in the churches of Christ, really from around the country. And a gentleman shared that um, at his, his congregation that he belongs to, out in kind of the rural areas of California, kind of the valley, I think they call it, is what he said, he said he found that when he, when they would bring up special topics for prayer during just the announcements, the welcome, they'd say, right now, just we really want to be praying for dot, dot, dot. And he said he found that when he, he introduced the announcements, we really want to be praying for the racial injustice that's going on in some of those areas around us right now. He got a pretty good response. And when he said we really want to be praying for right now some of the situations with immigrants because we know, uh, you know, from the very beginning in the giving of the law, God's people were refugees, they were immigrants, and so we just want to be conscious of all those who are suffering right now. He got a pretty good response. But one particular week he said, I went up there to really talk about what the Bible says, just that we want to be prayerful about the, the, the shifting landscape as far as abortion goes. And he said a couple of his elders said, you know, we don't, we don't really want to upset anybody. And he said what he found so ironic about that is that when he talked to ministers who were from the rural parts of the Midwest or the Southeast, their experience was the exact opposite. Why? Because we have the things that we like to talk about. We have the things we like to acknowledge. We have the things that seem to fit with where we're used to seeing the threats coming from. And we're fine with addressing those things. But the moment I start looking around and I'm willing to really turn my head from just that one direction and look at the entire scope of what God's word says, I'll probably find that the threats can come from anywhere. And I would remind us that at the very beginning, he said to turn your head neither to the right nor to the left. And while I don't think political parties existed in Moses' time, I'm sure he would tell you there were those who wanted to go one way and there were those who wanted to go another. And when I think about those that group of ministers that were there, I've talked to some people about this, and they said, well, the answer is obvious. Some of the ministers were wrong, and some of them were right. It's one perspective. But I'm reminded of Jesus' words, illustration of the Pharisee. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men who are all sinful and wayward. Something I just noticed in my own study is the more I look at the life and images and scenes of Jesus, the more I fear that I see myself in the Pharisees sometimes more than I see myself in Jesus. Because it's very easy to know when other people are wrong. It's very hard to know when I am wrong. 
And so my message tonight, and as I said, this is a series that I've kind of been working on, and we'll take a deeper study, a longer study, more in-depth at a later time. But I call you to at least be willing to live in the tension a little bit, to be aware of what your, what your preferences are or where you tend to sway or which direction it is that you tend to be pulled into so that you can be wary at least of understanding that if I tend to be pulled this way, I'm probably more likely to be attacked from a fret from over here. Because we all really have strengths and weaknesses or, or things that sort of pull us and, and the way our minds just tend to go by the way we operate and the way we view the world. But I think if we're correctly understanding and interpreting and applying God's word, it means sometimes, sometimes people will think you're a progressive. Well, we've always done things this way. It can't be wrong because my father did this and my grandfather did this. and It's always been this way. You cannot tell me I have to do it any differently. But it would also sometimes mean that you're a fundamentalist. We can't change anything. Heaven forbid. It'll sometimes mean you feel like you're just a radical and you're just constantly changing things and people will tell you you're just changing for the sake of change, but it'll also sometimes mean you find yourself being called old school or behind the times. Because I think when we're correctly understanding and interpreting God's word, that means we are not straying to the right nor to the left. Our first responsibility is not to win fans in what we think is the right camp, but it is rightly dividing the word of truth, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says. If you are with us tonight, before we go any further, if you have any need, if there's something you need to confess or bring forward, if there's anything we can do for you, why don't you come at this time while we stand and while we sing. Our God, yeah.